Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, how is the Omicron strain of the coronavirus affecting our littlest folks? We'll talk with Dr. Andy Shane from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Plus, it's been a busy week already at the state capitol. WABE politics reporters Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass join us to discuss what state lawmakers have been up to. And we'll celebrate seven years of Closer Look. But first, this. Snow! Yay! That's for the Midwest kid and me. But there are some precautions. Parts of north and central Georgia should brace for freezing rain, snow, and icy roads over the weekend. The National Weather Service says a winter storm watch is in effect for portions of north and central Georgia starting Saturday night. What does that mean? Well, it means ice accumulation could lead to power outages as well, tree damage, and traveling could be difficult. Just ask Tyvon. He's with the National Weather Service. He's a meteorologist out of Peachtree City. Make sure if you do decide to travel that your car is prepared with, you know, things like a nice warm blanket and your gas tank is full and things like that. And just make sure that you're uh, you're prepared for the worst and hope for the best. Good advice. Thanks, Todd. Governor Brian Kemp is speaking this hour about the state's preparations for this weekend's possibly winter weather. And we'll have more later from WABE News. And in just a moment, we'll speak with Commissioner Josh Rowan, Commissioner of the Atlanta Department of Transportation, with more. In other news, a bill that would let residents vote on creating a city of Buckhead has faced a setback at the state capitol. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan has assigned one of the proposed bills to a state Senate committee that only has Democrats on it. They think that makes it less likely the bill will get to the state Senate floor for a vote. Now, there's a separate Buckhead cityhood, cityhood bill in the Georgia House and the possibility that more bills will be filed during this legislative, legislative session. Meanwhile, a bill allowing a referendum on creating the city of East Cobb has made a step forward. It made it through a state House committee Thursday with bipartisan support. And tickets are sold out for this weekend's celebration of the Georgia Bulldogs national championship win. The formal program will be held at Sanford Stadium in Athens at 2 p.m. That's tomorrow, following a parade that kicks off at 1230. And if you didn't manage to get tickets, that's okay. You can watch it all online at georgiadogs.com, the SEC Network Plus, or Facebook Live. And as mentioned, a wintry mix of snow and ice is headed into Georgia. The city of Atlanta is getting ready. Joining me now to talk with the, talk about what this means is Josh Rowan. He's commissioner for the Atlanta Department of Transportation. Commissioner Rowan, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. How have you been? How have you been? How are you? That's the question. <laughs> I am. I am do. I am doing great. It's actually sunny and warming up, and been been walking streets with community members today. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a great Friday. Is this your first winter storm as commissioner of the Atlanta Department of Transportation? Because what a milestone for you if it is. 
It, it certainly <laughs> is. The, the last time we had a storm event was 2018, and I started in 2019. Yeah. So this, this is the, the first for me personally, but, but not for the, the great team of men and women we have at the Atlanta DOT. Well, let's talk about that be, before we get into how the city is prepping. Let's talk about your workforce. You have enough personnel, Commissioner, for the crews this weekend? We, we certainly do. In fact, one of the things that we've done, this is our second year, is just anticipating these type of events. We go into an on-call posture on the holidays, which essentially we're self-quarantining the entire department to keep folks healthy in case we have to mm-hmm. respond to an emergency type situation. Now, earlier today, you, alongside Mayor Andre Dickens, you all visited with the Department of Transportation, your, your staff. What did you all discuss? So we, we, we gave everyone a tour of our North Avenue facilities where, mm-hmm. we, where we house our, our salt, we house our snow and ice equipment, and, and where we, we, our operations will be, be centered should there be an event this weekend. I remember years ago when we had some storms in the city of Atlanta, just, I think y'all maybe had one or two even snow trucks or something like that. Let's talk about the pieces of equipment you all have. Obviously, it's been ramped up since all those past years of snowmageddon and all of that. 40 pieces of snow equipment you all say that you have. We, we have 40 pieces and probably 80, 90% of that are leased pieces of equipment mm-hmm. so that they're, they're ma- well maintained and ready to roll. We have those out and, and fired up. We've, we've um, tripled the amount of ice we have ice, the amount of salt we have on hand. And, and every year we run through a, a winter preparation conference. So mm-hmm. even though we haven't had any events over the past four years, we are actually rehearsing in late summer, early fall, running our routes, um, looking for, for operational issues so that we can, we can practice while the pressure's off and perform when the pressure's on. And exactly how are you all planning to tackle this forecast of possible snow, obviously some ice? When can folks might see, we might expect to see some folks out and, and taking care of the streets? So we will be reporting at 1 a.m. on Sunday. We're going to keep a, a close eye on the on the temperature. Right now, it's looking like there's some rain forecast, mm-hmm. and so we we won't be we won't be pre-treating with brine. Um, we 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 don't want that to just wash off the roads. But our, our first our our first crew is showing up about 150 people. I'll I'll be with them at, at 1 a.m. on Sunday to be dispatched throughout the city. the The real variable here is whether we see snow or ice. Mm-hmm. Um, Ice, as you know, is a, is a much different thing than snow. I, I grew up in the Rocky Mountains and, and understand snow, but this, the southeastern ice is a, is a whole different ballgame. Let's talk through in terms of, of where you all start. Usually, I guess it's those major streets. You know, we expect the peach trees and the Ponce de Leon's and, and maybe some of the other major streets, uh, Piedmont. Is that how you all determine where you begin? That is correct. We, we've prioritized the, the major thoroughfares, the ones that will really keep the, the needed services going, connecting to um, hospitals. Um, obviously, we won't be in school on Sunday, but mm-hmm. the, the ones that keep commerce going within the city. From there, we move into the, the minor thoroughfares. And, and really, that's, that's the extent of our plan is to hit those, those main roads in the city and, and keep them passable. I'm curious, what about the Beltline and some of the other pathways that people like to take throughout the city? Um, will you all be able to tackle that or is there another department? So I would, I would have to ask the Beltline that mm-hmm. we're, we're really just focused on city streets. Really? Y'all That's like, correct. Y'all not going to help folks on the Beltline? <laughs> well, we, we will if they ask, but you know, our, our well, I, don't, I doubt they have 40 pieces of snow equipment though. 
Well, and and they're also yeah, you know, they're also not moving vehicles on the Beltline either. That's true so too. we're so it's a risk reward kind of thing. <laughs> the Georgia Department of Transportation, of course, will handle the interstates and roads that they're responsible for. But will there be some coordination between the two agencies? Oh, most definitely. We have a we have a great partnership with the Georgia Department of Transportation and, and even some of the, the roads that you mentioned, Ponce and, and Peachtree, mm-hmm. portions of those are state routes. Um, MLK is a state route, Donnelly Hollowell. So we'll be working closely as the as the 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 storm moves in to to coordinate. They they do a great job. They're a great partner in, in everything transportation related that we do. What do you want folks to know in the city of Atlanta about you all and your plans that you have in terms of tackling this snow wintry mix that could possibly occur? What do you want folks to know? So the the thing that I would I would share with the the citizens of Atlanta is I know there have been some some comparisons drawn to 2014 and snowpocalypse or whatever we want to call that. There's a big difference here. We're not anticipating freezing temperatures for a week. And so we, we need the community to partner with us. One, don't panic. And two, if you can stay home on Sunday, it's, it's a holiday weekend. There's a triple header in the NFL. It might just be a good day to stay inside and, and eat some, eat some frozen pizza and watch football. Telling folks stay home, watch TV sports and just chill. Is that what you're saying? By the time we get to late in the day, Monday into Tuesday, this thing will be long, long since gone. But if there are some city streets and pathways that you all are responsible for, that need to be serviced. Maybe y'all haven't gotten to, or just might be really, really bad. Who should folks contact? So, so one of the things that that's a real challenge is is black ice, mm-hmm. and and what we'll do is we'll respond to calls from citizens who report black ice and treat those on a on a sort of a spot type basis. We we don't have the ability to go go find it in advance, but we we find that there there could be a, a threat of a, a melt and a refreeze, mm-hmm. which in some of your your shaded areas could could pose some challenges just depending on where the temperatures are. So. Um, really encourage folks to report to the city any any black ice areas they see and we will get out and, and treat those what is there a special number they should call commissioner so so you can report them through 311 and mm-hmm. they'll they'll come straight to us all right josh rowan commissioner for the atlanta department of transportation thank you so much for taking the time good information our listeners really appreciate it we appreciate it i i appreciate it that's that's great i don't think we've spoken since before the pandemic so it's nice to catch back up with you all right i'm gonna do what you say i'm gonna stay home and watch football and get some pizza or something and and i hope your team plays well well my they took my team out of st louis i just root for anybody (laughs) oh i gotcha i gotcha (laughs) take care now all right have a good day you too Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U.
And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE in Atlanta, where we try to amplify voices. I'm Rose Scott. The COVID-19 pandemic is as bad as it's ever been in Georgia due to the highly contagious Omicron variant of the coronavirus. And this wave of the pandemic is hitting our littlest folks, the children, pretty hard. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of Atlanta Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, spoke about this last week. Pediatric hospitalizations are at the highest rate compared to any prior point in the pandemic. Sadly, we are seeing the rates of hospitalizations increasing for children zero to four, children who are not yet currently eligible for COVID-19 vaccination. Now, for a look at how all this is playing out here in Georgia for our littlest ones in the Atlanta area, we're joined by Dr. Andy, Andy Shane. She's been on this program many times. She's a contributor. You all send emails about her. She's got a fan club, if she doesn't know that. And she's a pediatric infectious disease expert with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. Dr. Shane, as always, thank you for taking the time. Someone said you need to have your own show. You ready? Uh, thank you, Rose. No, I'll only do it with you. <laughs> I'd like to just uh, have you, I want to begin by just reflecting on what we just heard from Dr. Rochelle Olinsky. And uh, we also see in this spike, um, I know you maybe can't speak for the entire state of Georgia, maybe you can, but what are you seeing? So yes, Rose, uh, very true. We are seeing a tremendous uh, increase, higher than we've seen throughout this pandemic, in the number of children who have been diagnosed with, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, many of them, thankfully, have not required hospitalization, but at the same time, we also have seen a tremendous increase in the number of children uh, who have been hospitalized. Have you noticed, or you, you in your you're in the space, and your your colleagues and the other researchers and scientists, is there anything about this Omicron strain that obviously we know it's highly contagious, but anything else that you're noticing as to why it is infecting more younger, the youngest of the youngest kids here? Yes, great question, and lots of people are looking into that. One of the issues is that uh, children under the age of five are currently not eligible by age for vaccination, and so that makes them uh, more likely to have uh, infections and more likely to transmit infection and more likely, unfortunately, to have severe infections. So that is probably one of the reasons. Um, In addition, also, we still have... uh, very low vaccination rates among children in Georgia who are age eligible. And that's something that we are actively working on and need everyone's help to work on. Dr. Walensky said last week, it's not clear if these children are coming into the hospitals because they're suspected to have COVID-19, but might be brought in for another reason and then tested and found to be positive. Is that what you're seeing? And how might that, for someone listening, says that might even skew the numbers? Right. There's been a lot of discussion about children uh, who are being hospitalized for COVID um, and children who are being hospitalized with COVID. And so clearly it's important to know the difference between the two. But it also means that we have many children who have underlying medical conditions that are being hospitalized and they may or may not be having more severe uh, exacerbations of their underlying medical condition, for example, asthma or diabetes. Uh, because they are currently infected with COVID. So the bottom line is that we still need to prevent COVID transmission uh, because it is also impacting not only children who are having COVID, but other children who have underlying medical conditions who then may have more severe uh, conditions because of their COVID infection. There's just increasing evidence that infection with Omicron leads to less severe disease in adults, which we've been hearing, than infection with previous strains. Is that the case with the children too, that we're seeing that that the Omicron leads to less severe disease 
with these kids who might be infected than those with the, a previous strain? And that's, I guess, Felisa, for the kids who might be leaving a little bit older, if that makes sense. Yes, no, the question is a great one. And unfortunately, um, the problem is uh, severity is a very individual uh, um, assessment. If it's your child, it's severe. Um, and if you're taking care of someone who's not doing well, it's also severe. I would say that, you know, that's on the individual level. On the population level, in general, what we're seeing is that even though there are more hospitalizations, the overall time that children are spending in, in the hospital uh, in general and the number of children who require intensive care for COVID specifically um, has been less. However, the impact on the healthcare system in general has just been tremendously overwhelming mm -hmm. because now also what we're seeing as opposed to when we had the alpha and delta circulating is that children are being hospitalized for unrelated COVID unrelated complications. And so um, those are also those hospitalizations have increased. I'm curious, and so Dr. Shen, is that the the protocol now that w whenever a child is brought in for another reason that they will be automatically tested? Because that's what we see in some of the other with adults with with our other healthcare systems. Is that the protocol? So it depends on where you are and um, what you're doing. One of the big challenges that we've faced is uh, availability of tests and availability of mm -hmm. test results and turnaround of test results. And anyone who's tried to get a test in the community or tried to test at home understands this challenge. We've had the same challenges in the hospital. So what we try to do is test when the result of the test is going to impact care. We try to be judicious about our testing. And we try to test when it's important to know whether or not a child may be uh, infected or co-infected uh, with COVID. I remember in one of our earlier conversations when they were just doing the trials and we were talking about um, the coronavirus infection in kids that had been linked to an inflammatory condition called, I think I'm saying it right, Miss C. Are we seeing the same thing with the Omicron variant? Yes, that's, that's a great question, Rose, and something that everybody wants to really know. So MISC is, as you beautifully stated, a post-infectious inflammatory condition that occurs anywhere. Well, with the alpha strain, it was about three to four weeks. Mm -hmm. With Delta, it was six to eight weeks. We, we're not quite sure what we're going to see with Omicron yet. It's probably a little bit early. Uh, we have seen continued, we did see a little bit of a drop uh, in December, but we are starting to see a few more cases, and so the, that probably is the result of Omicron. Uh, time will tell us that. But I do want to emphasize that what we, are, what we are seeing is that those children who are developing MISC are, by the most part, uh, unvaccinated, either uh, because they're not age eligible or because they have not uh, opted to be vaccinated. The voice you hear is Dr. Andy Shang with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. And we're talking about the Omicron variant with our, our littlest of the adult of our population. You know, the zero, the cute ones who run around and, you know, touch everything. Um, I'm curious because for those little ones, those kids who are eligible and who have the vaccine, is the vaccine working as well against Omicron in the kids who are eligible, who, who are vaccinated? Have you what, what, what are we hearing in, in your world? So the vaccine is doing what it should be doing, Rose. The vaccine is preventing children from being hospitalized. It's preventing children from having severe infections. It's preventing children from needing intensive care. Um, and that is really been shown uh, through Delta and also we're definitely seeing that through Omicron. It is not preventing mild infections the way we would like it to. 
But the vaccine really was designed to prevent severe infections. And I cannot emphasize enough what a great job it's been doing. Um, however, we, we still need more people to be vaccinated uh, because the more people that are vaccinated in the population, the less people there are who are susceptible to having severe infection. Dr. Shane, I have a listener who sends me an email who says her, her youngest one is not eligible, but they are within a year of being, I guess, was it five years old? Do you recommend that or and then again, this is through your lens. We ask that the listener also consult with their primary care physician or pediatrician. But I'm, you might have, I'm, I'm assuming you've had that question. Does it have to be a full calendar year, you think, for someone to go ahead and take that? Say that I want my child to be vaccinated, although they're not quite five, but they'll be five like in a few months. Well, the, the good news is that we are hoping to have uh, authorization for that youngest group. Uh, very soon. Uh, it's hard to know exactly when that will occur, but really we do recommend that people are vaccinated according to their age and the uh, what's been set forward in the uh, emergency use authorization or if you're old or not old uh, and qualify uh, under the actual uh, approval. Um, but yes, we do recommend that people wait until their child is age eligible. We, we love the fact that people want to have their children immunized and mm-hmm. that's really great. And to those families who have children who are not quite age eligible, everyone else in the family should be vaccinated if they are age eligible, everybody that that child is around. So you can still advocate as a parent for everyone else to be vaccinated, even if your own child is not age eligible. Meanwhile, while we read that from a listener, we know that uh, according to data, just over 17% of those kids, 5 to 11, uh, are only fully vaccinated in our nation. Now, it's been more than two months after shots became available to that age group. Are you, that 17%, do you, are you shocked by that? Do you, did you think it would be higher after two months? I was hoping it would be higher. Um, you know, I think a lot of parents wanted to watch and wait. And we've had two very important uh, publications this past week that have uh, unequivocally uh, demonstrated the safety of these vaccines and the effectiveness in preventing severe infections in specifically in children of this age group. And so uh, really important for those families who were opting to watch and wait, now is really the time that we need children to be vaccinated. Also, I think a number of families feel that after infection, it's not necessary to get vaccinated. And I really want to make sure that we emphasize that once a child is fully recovered from their infection, If they are age eligible, they absolutely should be vaccinated to maximize the protection that their child will um, have. I ask this question every time we talk. I'm going to continue to ask it. What conversations are you having with parents who are hesitant to get their kids vaccinated? And something a little bit different, though. What are arguments? I won't say arguments, but what has been most convincing from you to them? So I think that um, actually I'm probably not the best person to convince, um, although we as physicians and clinicians try very hard um, and parents trust us, which we value tremendously. But actually I found that having other children who have been vaccinated, who are willing to describe their experience to other children uh, is very effective. I think a lot of children are afraid and nobody likes a needle. Um, And unfortunately that's the way the vaccine is delivered at this point. And so having a child or an older um, adolescent uh, explain to other older adolescents or other children what they went through and how they're feeling um, is one of the most convincing ways as well. 
Where do we go from here? And this is through your lens, Dr. Shane. Um, how does this current surge play out? You're hoping. And then what about the next <laughs> variant? Because as you all tell us, there will be another new variant. So I think we all feel that hopefully we're, we may have entered the decline a little bit on the, uh, at least locally here in the Atlanta metropolitan area, um, and that we will continue to see a decline. And we probably will see the resurgence of new variants, hopefully less transmissible and less severe disease. But we're going to have to learn to really live with this virus. Um, there likely will be uh, vaccines that will be needed, hopefully no more than annually, sort of the way we do with flu vaccines. And we probably will have to have times when we'll have to have masks on and we'll have times when maybe we don't need to have masks on. So it's hard, but we really ask for people to try to um, get reputable sources of information. The CDC website, the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory websites um, are really uh, very helpful and to understand and act and adjust as we need to uh, respond to increasing levels of the virus in the community and hopefully very soon decreasing levels. Meanwhile, over at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, are you all experiencing uh, just being overwhelmed with kids, who, whether they're coming in for the virus or not, but then you, you, after testing, you find out that they have the virus. We know what this is doing to so many healthcare systems. We hear about shortages of beds and that, you know, obviously staff and, and hospital systems are overwhelmed. How, you all, how are you all doing over there? So I think that's a great question, Rose. And, you know, we, one of the things that we do is, as clinicians and healthcare uh, workers is we all pull together and we do our best to try to help out. Uh, it's been challenging, though, because many of our healthcare workers also have families themselves and they may be sick, their children may be sick. And so we really have, are trying to do our best to keep people healthy, have people work when they're able to work and not work when they're not able to work. Uh, we require masking at all times. Uh, we encourage that for children who are age eligible and families. Um, and we really are trying to do our best to keep our healthcare workers uh, healthy, um, to, for us to stay healthy, and to make sure that we're here and available to take care of children. Dr. Andy Shane is a pediatric infectious disease expert with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. She's a regular contributor to Closer Look. Some of y'all say she should have her own show, but she's going to hang with me for now. Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. As always, good information. Thank you so much, Rose, and happy seventh anniversary. Thank you. This is what we call legislative news update theme music. Eh, maybe not. Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Out of Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. That's pretty catchy. I like it. The first week of the of the year, obviously the legislative session, can set the tone for the 40-day session as lawmakers lay out their priorities. And some of that comes from the governor's office. Republican Brian Kemp released his plan for how he wants to spend state money this week. And he laid out his vision for the session during the State of the State Address this past Thursday. It invests historic levels of resources in our students and educators, keeps politics out of the classroom, and ensures parents have the final say in their kids' education. It reduces the cost of health insurance for Georgia families, recruits 1,300 new nurses and doctors into communities where they're needed the most, 
and gives new mothers expanded access to medical care. It incentivizes more Georgians to enter a career in law enforcement, redoubles our efforts to dismantle violent gangs and combat human trafficking, and strengthens Georgians' constitutional rights to protect themselves and their families. Now, as keeping in always, we get a different point of view from the other side of the aisle about that vision. Here's House Minority Leader, Democrat James Beverly. That's our governor's vision for Georgia. A race to the right to kick off his campaign while everyday Georgians need solutions. Our Republican colleagues and the state legislator are following right along. Hmm. WAB politics reporter Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass join me now because they took all this in this week and they'll be taking it all in in the following weeks. <laughs> Sam, Raul, you all made it through the first week. Congratulations. That's no small feat. Hi, Rose. Yes, we did. <laughs> And before we go any further, congratulations on seven years. For for those on Twitter, there's a great picture from your guys, your first day that Dennis O'Hare tweeted out. So uh, yeah. congratulations. I thank you. I appreciate that. Let's begin with that State of the State address yesterday. Governor Kemp looks prepared to hand out some money to lots of folks, teachers, law enforcement officers, enforcement officers, foster parents. Break that down for us. Uh, what else did he say in terms of why he was doing this? It's because there's billions and billions billions of extra dollars that are coming into the state coffers uh, via state revenue, sales taxes, income taxes. Just to put in perspective, the budget year we're in right now, the budget that runs from now till July, was set to be $27 billion. The governor's been able to bump that up more than 10% to to, uh, almost to $30 billion. And what that means is he's got money now to do worth and to do things with. For example, he's you know putting out there the $2,000 pay raise for teachers. That's not just for next school year, but it, he's got a $2,000 bonus for this school year. Mm-hmm. Same with the $5,000 increase for state employees in the University of System of Georgia. That's for this year. And then that proposed tax credit that's going to be sending back to Georgians, $250 if you're a single filer, $500 if you're a married couple filing jointly. That $1.6 billion, again, that's money he has right now, that if it gets approved, it happens immediately. It's because there's so much more money to work with. Sam, let me bring you to the program, because for Governor Kemp, that's a good way to set the tone for his state of the state address. What was your takeaway from it? Yeah, so we're talking about putting money in the pockets of voters. Remember, this is an election year. And so kind of similar to how the Biden administration really early on focused on, you know, pandemic relief bills and stimulus checks, the child tax credit. You know, these are tangibly reminding voters that the government is working for you. But I think like the other bigger takeaway, if you took a highlighter to the state of the state address and chunked it out into buckets. Like the two biggest things that I saw were public safety and schools. Um, And we're not just talking about funding here. He's really wading into some of these naughty social issues like gun access and what's taught in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Kemp says he wants to sign legislation to allow permitless carry. Uh, He frames this as kind of an issue of public safety. A lot of Republicans do, and you'll hear it called constitutional carry, mm-hmm. um, broadly allowing people to carry a concealed weapon without a permit. 
Um, and then on schools, you know, I know we're going to dive into this a little further, but just broadly, you know, he's talking about bills that would protect students from what he called divisive uh, ideologies. And so that's really legislation that's governing how schools teach about certain topics. Let's get into that, because as you mentioned, when he focused on education, he's specifically stopping what he called the indoctrination quote, of students. Let's take a listen. That's why I'm looking forward to working with the members of the General Assembly this legislative session to protect our students from divisive ideologies like critical race theory that pits kids against each other. I also look forward to working with the House and the Senate to pass and sign a parental bill of rights in our education system and other pieces of legislation that I strongly support to ensure fairness in school sports in address of seen materials online and in our school libraries. There's a lot there, but first we should know critical race theory does not pit kids against each other. That is the governor's opinion, but that has not been proven anywhere. All right, Sam, lot lot packed in there. What's he talking about? Obscene. Yeah, so there's a lot going on in there, as you mentioned. Um, first, we should just say right off the bat that critical race theory is an academic framework. It's something that's mostly studied at a university level that kind of unpacks how race is embedded in legal systems. Yes. And it's typically not something that's actually taught in K through 12 classrooms. So there's a lot of ambiguity right now about what a critical race theory bill would even do. Like what would the punishment be for teaching it? And like, how would you even decide what it means to teach critical race theory? Like, is that assigning this academic reading or is it teaching about Jim Crow? We like, act, we just don't know right now. Um, when you hear the governor talk about fairness in sports, mm -hmm. uh, he's probably talking about transgender athletes and whether they can play on the team that matches their gender identity. Again, another kind of vague proposal that we don't know exactly what it would look like in practice. Um, obscene materials that could be, you know, putting standards into place that basically govern what might be appropriate depending on what grade you're in. But another thing with lots of ambiguity, are we talking about books? Are we talking about curriculum? What you can look at online? We don't know. Yes. So uh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So, so I think what we're seeing here overall in all of these bills being on the table is Governor Kemp and Republicans looking ahead to their primary races and getting ready for election. I mean, if you look back to the governor's race in Virginia last year, the GOP candidate was carried into office in part because of how he talked about education and a lot of these same issues, not just getting schools open, but putting decisions about what happens in classrooms in the hands of parents. And I think we're going to see a lot of that discussion coming up over the next session. Raul, what do you want to add? So uh, Sam talked a little bit about what this may look like. Here are the conversations I'm having at the state capitol. In terms of obscene materials, it's what Sam was saying, maybe setting standards or like what areas can be appropriately taught at what ages. Um, on critical race theory, where this may be going is some sort of definitions first going to have to be laid out for it. But then the enforcement tool either becomes taking money away out of the state funding formula mm -hmm. or even the possibility of, okay, critical race theory was taught in my school. I can go to the school board and sue for my property tax back from the school system is, is, is another idea that I've heard floating around. And finally, parental bill of rights. That was the other thing that you heard in that cut. 
it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like. My understanding is the governor's one of the governor's floor leaders is going to be dropping that bill next week. And so that's another thing. And we're just really going to look to see, is that some sort of process where Rose can, you know, or me can go to our school system and say, I have a complaint about a teacher and what that process looks like. But again, it's, it's really a lot of details we still need to see. Well, I personally think every school should teach the wonderful, wonderful composition of Parliament Funkadelic, but that's just me. If you're joining us, I'm in conversation with WAB politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally, both who love Parliament Funkadelic. Uh, let's talk about then what we heard within, from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. They held its annual Eggs and Issue Breakfast, the governor and other lawmakers sharing their visions for this session. Raul, you were there. What stood out to you? I have to say, what really jumped out at me was you have business. This, so it was at the Fox Theater this mm-hmm. year. You have all these business leaders sitting there. And in front of them, you have the arguments break out about elections. You had Reverend Warnock, I mean, Senator Warnock, you know, saying that what, you know, election access is, is good for Georgia business and and not allowing access is bad for Georgia business. You mm-hmm. had the speaker, Speaker Ralston, really take issue with what Joe Biden had said the day before, uh, you know, invoking the name of Jefferson Davis. You had this open in front of Georgia business leaders, almost this battle about elections. It, it, was, it, was, it was the story I did earlier this week. That was something that really, really jumped out at me. Mm. I want to talk about cityhood because we haven't talked about it enough on this program. But <laughs> <laughs> um, some interesting news regarding cityhood. Which one of y'all want to tackle that? Um, the interesting news on cityhood, it was just, it was, it was, it was a small procedural move, but it was one of those which you went, wow. So there in the, in the Georgia state Senate, there is a couple of committees that are led by Democrats. And there's actually one committee that's all Democrats mm-hmm. and that's the urban affairs committee. And that's where the Lieutenant governor sent the bill. The Lieutenant governor, when he gets a bill has the power to send it to whatever committee for he Buckhead wants. city. For one he of the Buckhead cities. He sent Senate Bill 324, the, the current, the only version in the Senate right now, mm-hmm. to that committee. Does it kill the bill? No. It's a clear message from the lieutenant governor, you know, to send that bill. That generally would have gone to a different committee, state and local operations. To send it to an all-democratic committee, it sends a message. I spoke to the chairman. He said he's going to hold hearings. He's going to hold he calls them fair and transparent hearings. He's going to invite everybody there. But this really effectively makes it hard for the bill to move. It does not kill it. I make it clear to anybody. There are so many procedural ways for this bill to still get to a Senate vote. But you have a marker here where the lieutenant governor has made very clear that right now he doesn't have the answers that he wants to hear. Raul and Sam, I want to give you an opportunity to educate for our listeners who may not know why some of these measures obviously have to go to a, a committee hearing and then the, what happens in those committee hearings? So generally in those committee hearings, you're, you're going to call in witnesses. So for example, you know, in this hearing, they'll probably call Bill White, the gentleman who's leading uh, the Buckhead city movement. He, they'll probably call in some of the, the forces that are against it. They may even call in the mayor um, and other people a lot of work happens in the committee to change bills, fine tune bills. 
because by the time they get to the floor, Mm -hmm. generally less and less bills are ever amended. For example, voting, redistricting, and most bills, they're, they're not amended in the Senate or the House. They're amended and changed in committee. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the committee process is so important. And it's also important to see what committee a bill goes to. And so the for the lieutenant governor to send that bill to an all-democratic committee is sending a very clear message. Hmm. Sam, what are you going to be uh, focusing on next week? Well, Something I'm looking for is whether there's Republican pushback to any of these big spending priorities. Uh, Kemp's primary opponent, David Perdue, Mm -hmm. called the budget, quote, a reckless election year spending. And I wonder if there are other Republicans who feel this way, too, or we're entering a session where you have a unified front on some of these priorities like, you know, um, pay increases for teachers and uh, tax breaks for taxpayers. The other like kind of curious thing that I noticed when we started to parse it's budget week next week. So we're going to start to learn a lot more about some of the details of these budget priorities. Um, It's a 412 page document. And so we've all kind of started parsing through that. And there's like little nuggets and clues that tell us a bit more about some of the priorities that Governor Kemp uh, and party leadership have for this session. One thing I noticed is there's a couple of line items for uh, Rivian. Uh, Remember that big $5 billion Mm -hmm. electric vehicle plant that is going to be built in Georgia. We've been waiting uh, with bated breath to find out how much the state is kicking in for this Mm -hmm. project. It had been secret so far, and we're starting to get some clues in the budget. 110-ish million for land acquisition and development, almost half a million for positions to support the project in the Office of Economic Mm -hmm. Development. So I'm curious if we'll learn more about what else was in this package. Um, And then the other thing I'm kind of looking at too is uh, what we're gonna see on on healthcare and the the pandemic. Um, You know, Governor Kemp did really not mention the pandemic in his state of the state address beyond talking about how we've recovered from it uh, in many ways. There's like a few inklings in the budget, uh, money for physicians, for mental health care. But I'm curious to see how much the the Omicron uh, wave factors in into the spending priorities here. Good to know. Raul, what about you? What will you be following? Uh I agree with Sam. There's always these little gems that kind of give you a clue of what's going on. The gem that jumped out at me is in the GBI budget. There are a, there's a half a million dollars for positions to investigate election complaints. That's an important clue because you may remember in my sit down interview with uh, Speaker David Ralston, he talked about the GBI having original jurisdiction mm-hmm. over election complaints. Well, the governor now put in money for the GBI to have that. That gives me a big clue that that's going to happen. In terms of this coming week, coming up next week, the state budget hearings. Mm -hmm. Governor Kemp is going to speak. The Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, the Secretary of State is going to speak. And then, as as Sam mentioned, you've got uh, the Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Kathleen Toomey. All of those are going to be very interesting watches this upcoming week. uh, during the budget hearings that start on Tuesday. Uh, a lot of folks talking. Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass, they cover politics for WABE. We've been talking about what's been happening at the state capitol and what's going to continue to happen. Thanks to you both, as always. We really appreciate it. Good stuff. Good information. Thanks, Rose. Stay safe.
Ah, yes, you've heard this theme music for a couple of years now. Closer Look weekdays at 1 and again at 7 p.m. Did you know when WABE launched its midday programs back in 2015, City Lights and Closer Look, both shows were two hours. Goodness gracious. It's 106. Good Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for being with us and welcome back to A Closer Look. I'm Dennis O'Hare. And I'm Rose Scott. Dennis, right now, Georgia lawmakers are looking at a major overhaul of the way we pay taxes in this state. Meanwhile, one of the more outspoken voices in the state... Still talking politics. Oh, yeah. The name of the program was A Closer Look. After much debate, heated arguments, we dropped the article, we dropped the A. (laughs) Joining me now is our newest member of the team. He's senior producer... Sam Whitehead used to be our, our WABE health and news reporter. Sam, welcome to the team officially. Hey, thanks, Rose. Good to be here. Can you imagine producing this show two hours every day? You know, I remember I um, uh, remember hearing those two-hour episodes of Closer Look. Um, that's a lot of work. It's a marathon. Who are you tell? <laughs> I know you know that. Just just for the listeners, as someone who has now been uh, intimately involved in pri- uh, trying to put together these hour-long shows, I can only imagine. Let me ask you, Sam, and I know you had no idea I was going to do this, but, you know, folks have asked me, what is Closer Look about? And I'm going to ask you, what is Closer Look about? You know, I like to think that what we do um, is kind of turn a lens back on the community, right? Um, We were actually in some kind of uh, professional development sessions this morning, you and I, and we got to talk about this. Um, You know, you, I think, and the people that have worked on this show over the years have done such a great job of kind of opening this space to the audience. Um, That's everything from, you know, bringing in calls from listeners to get their take on, you know, where we are as a society with the pandemic, you know, with democracy. Um, And then it's also, you know, like segments we had on today, um, you know, bringing in experts who not only can share their knowledge, uh, but also are part of this community as well. You know, we don't bring in experts from, you know, Harvard or Stanford. We want people on the ground here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what this show really is about. It's it's creating this space for our community to share their stories um, with the goal of having everyone be better informed. Do you like Closer Look or A Closer Look? I was going to ask, because, you know, there's this moment in that movie, The Social Network, right, where Sean Parker, played by Justin Timberlake, talks to Jesse Eisenberg, who's the Mark Zuckerberg character, and says, drop the the on the Facebook. So so when was your... When was that moment for A Closer Look? When they first told me we're doing a show called A Closer Look, I said, ah, I don't like A Closer Look. Just call it Closer Look. But I tell you, you work with... And marketing folks at the time was just one person. Mm -hmm. But she was... No, it's got to be a closer look, a closer look. And I was like, no, it's just got to be closer look. And then Dennis, of course, he's always going to agree with me. Sure. Because he's my he's my dude, right? Sure. So he's like, yeah, it should be closer look. But of course, that didn't happen for us. Well, well, just uh, think up some some magical story about someone who finally made that decision and got rid of that indefinite article. I just remember we coming to work one day and someone said, don't say a closer look anymore. <laughs> just say closer look. And I said, yes. It's a great day. And listenership exploded after that. Absolutely. <laughs> but thank you so much for everyone who's made Closer Look a signature program in this region. We take pride in being curators of community news, conversations, and information. And to that, we'll actually end today's program with the weather forecast. Mm-hmm. 
Well, in case you don't know, parts of north and central Georgia should brace for freezing rain, snow, and icy roads over the weekend. The National Weather Service says a winter storm watch is in effect for portions of north and central Georgia starting Saturday night. Ice accumulation could lead to some power outages and tree damages and travel could be difficult. And again, I'm going to say, just a reminder, check, check on your neighbors or a household that might need some assistance. Because you know what? We're all in this together. Yes, we are. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Danielle Razel are producers. Daniel Razel are producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. And I got to tell you, folks, our producers, they have fan clubs. People, Kevin, people ask me, hey, Kevin, he rides a bike. I like to ride a bike with Kevin. Now, I'm not going to put Kevin's business out there and tell you where he lives. But if you want to join the Kevin Rinker Biking club, I don't know if he has one. The community club? Commute. You're going to start, Kevin is in my ear, so apparently he's going to start the Kevin Rinker K-Ride Commute Club. I'll get you some t-shirts, Kevin. That's all I can do. All right. But our producers have, I love it when folks say to me, hey, I love Sam Whitehead. I love Grace Walker. I love Candace Wheeler. I love LaShawn Hudson. I love Daniel and his pickle soup recipe. No, no one actually said that. I just threw that in there to make Daniel feel part of the team. But anyway, thank you to all of the producers who have worked on this show and who are currently on this show. And of course, our digital team. We love you. My colleagues in the newsroom. Thank you all so much. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email. Rose at WABE.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. So stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Let it snow! Let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.